On this episode, I'm in the room with author and professor Karen Swallow Pryor. Welcome to In the Room, episode number 84. I'm your host, Ryan Hughley. For those of you joining me for the first time, I'm the founding and lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah, and the author of Eight Hours or Less, Writing Faithful Sermons Faster. Today, I'm talking with the brilliant and delightful Karen Swallow Pryor. She is the research professor of English and Christianity and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Karen is also a prolific author. Her writing has appeared in Christianity Today, The Atlantic, and The Washington Post, among other publications, and she's written numerous books, including her new work, On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. Now, unfortunately, I hadn't read anything by Karen and didn't become aware of her until a friend of mine posted a picture of this new book on Instagram, and I was so struck by how beautiful the artwork was. I was so struck by it that I ordered the book, and then I was blown away to find that the writing was even better than the art. What I loved about it was that it's a book about many things. It's a book about books. It's a book about reading. It's a book about virtue and how reading forms us. It's a book that makes me want to read more widely and to read more deeply. Karen was generous enough to make time to cover a lot of ground with me. So we discuss reading and writing, thinking, books, parenting, and social media. There's a lot here. If you're not familiar with her, I highly recommend you follow her on social media, that you read her articles, and that you buy her books, because I think there is so much to learn from her. So to that end, it's my pleasure to invite you in the room for my conversation with Karen Swallow Pryor. So one of the things that um, I've noticed and that I admire about you the most, following you on social media and now having been being introduced to your writing, is your personal um, love of reading is infectious. And I would think, I've not had the privilege of taking a class from you, but I would think one of the great gifts that you offer your students is how genuinely passionate you are about books and reading. And so it made me curious, what was the first book that you remember really impacting you? Well, that's a hard question to answer because I'm, my memories of reading and loving reading go all the way back to when I was four or five years old and began okay. to love to read. But I guess so I, so picking somewhere maybe in the middle, I would say that um, as a young girl reading um, the Black Stallion series yeah. by Walter Farley just mm-hmm. – help me to, I mean, I love, I always loved read, but that series of books just had me sort of enter a world um, in a way that just remained with me and is what the best books do for me all the time now. So. I love that. And where do you, I mean, when you think about being a child, where did your love of reading come from? Was that pretty natural? That started as early back as you can remember? Is there someone in your family or around you that fostered that? Where, where did that love come from? Well, my mother uh, read to us regularly as children, but of course I have two siblings and I don't believe they love reading like I do. So, you know, that's okay. not obviously a, um, a, a magical formula, but, um, that was the foundation. Um, and so I would just say that, you know, that opportunity combined with, 
I guess, a natural constitution uh, toward imagination and a love of words um, that was cultivated and encouraged. Um, but it began very, very early. And so that's been a blessing, really, because yeah. uh, so I think it's easier to, to love and enjoy reading when it begins early. So yeah. I'm thankful. And where were you born and where did you grow up? Um, I was born and raised primarily in the state of Maine. Um, So it was, you know, we were, we lived, you know, a very rural, um, simple life. And so I did spend a lot of time by myself and sort of exploring the world through imagination. So, and books and um, so, yeah, that probably helped as well. Yeah. Did you grow up in a family of faith? Were your parents believers? Uh, yes, my my parents were believers by the time I was um, small. Anyway, um, and uh, we began attending a Baptist church when I was about um, five or six or seven. So I grew up primarily Baptist. Was and and actually accepted Christ before. I, I actually don't remember that. My mother yep. does, but so. I do remember, you know, choosing to be baptized by immersion after we started attending the Baptist church. And, um, and so I just have that, that uh, awareness for my entire conscious life of, of Jesus as my savior and being mm-hmm. a believer. And that's a blessing too. <laughs> Absolutely. And when you think about your parents, when, what, are, what are one or two things that you feel like are the biggest values or even habits in your life that um, growing up in their home were really imprinted on you? Mm. Um, I think that th- their, I don't know if I can boil this down to one word, but mm-hmm. their, um, their confidence in who I was rather than any expectations of what they wanted me to be. So um, just allowing me to pursue my passions and interests, you know, whether it was books or animals, which also was another passion and, um, and not trying to control me or, you know, or make me in their image or make me do things, you know, all the lessons and the whatever and the activities. I just got to explore who God created me to be. And they supported that. And we're, we're, we're cool with that. Yeah. (laughs) Which is amazing. Yeah. 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 So where, when, when did writing become a thing for you that you chose to focus on and maybe started to realize you had some giftedness in? Um, well, I mean, I, I, you know, I think all little girls who love words and books write poetry and I did that. Um, and, uh, so, you know, through high school and college, I wrote, um, I thought I was going to be a creative writer, you know, wrote poetry and short stories and, um, but, but also began even in college, I was, I was the columnist for the student paper, um, and so I did really gravitate toward nonfiction um, essays from college onward, but I never, uh, I never planned to be a writer. Okay. Um, I had a lot of other career goals and by, you know, I finally settled on a, on a PhD and being an English professor. And even when I began that, I really, by then I discovered my calling as a teacher. Um, and so even now all of the writing that I do really comes out of my teaching. Like if I were not teaching, I don't think that I would be a writer. Okay. So. And, uh, how has it been being back? Are you guys, are you teaching in person now or are you teaching online with COVID going on or how is that working for you? 
Yeah, I, I mean, COVID, uh, um, you know, I made a transition um, from one institution to Southeastern Baptist Theological yep. Seminary this fall, um, and COVID happened, you know, sort of, sort of in the midst of that. Um, so what I had already um, planned to do with Southeastern, uh, because I can't relocate right now, mm -hmm. um, is to teach intensive format classes on campus oh, cool. and so that's that that actually covid has not prevented that from happening um we have a small campus our we're very strict about about the rules yep, <laughs> about yep. covid and other things we don't yeah. have sports um so if you know the this southeastern is a campus that actually is the kind of campus De already designed and prepared to handle this kind of thing so i'm teaching my classes in intensive formats um okay yeah, I'm, I've never taught online except yeah. for, uh, you know, in co the last half of last semester right. on with COVID. But uh, my, you know, I teach with my whole person. And yeah. so for me, teaching is an incarnational thing. And, and it, I just, I don't know that I would teach if I were only doing it online. I was reading an article uh, just this morning about your transition to Southeastern, <clears throat> and I was unaware, at least this article said that you were one of only two women, I believe, that were professors on campus. Is that, did I read that right? Um, uh, two or three. Okay. I, yeah, yeah. How do you, how do you, so ha having, <laughs> being on the front end, I guess, of paving that, how do you feel about that? How do you think about that? Um, how has that transition been? Yeah, I mean, I guess that I I actually have um, for most of my adult life been a um, um, a woman in a primarily or solely uh, male spaces. So mm -hmm. um, it's it's not it's something that I'm used to. Nothing uh, new for you. Nothing new, really. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, good. I, you know, one of the things I, I hear, I'm sure you hear this from people as well. It sounds like even your own siblings, but I hear people say all the time, like, I don't really like to read. And, and so I, I'm just wondering your opinion and maybe you're biased as a, as a professor in this area, but do you think being a reader is, is critical for everyone? And, and if so, how can you, if it doesn't come naturally, how does one, could one cultivate a love for reading? Yeah. So I want to answer this in two ways. I want to, okay. you know, because I, I, I really dislike as much as I love reading and uh -huh. I do not understand not loving reading. Um, I also, I don't like the kind of sentiment or thinking that um, looks down on people who don't read um, yeah. because there are way, there are so many ways of knowing and interacting with the world. Um, some people do that by working with their hands or through art or, um, or, you know, or, or music or just any, so, so many ways. Yeah. And so, um, I don't, you know, we don't all have to be like other people. Um, that's not how God designed the world or us. Right. Um, on the other hand, <laughs> um, reading is uh, definitely is a, I think, helps us think in ways um, that are crucial, not only as Christians, but mm -hmm. even just as human beings. Um, I think it allows us to think more circumspectly and uh, with different perspectives um, and to see the world through different eyes, um, to think in 
linear and logical ways Mm -hmm. um, because that the nature, you know, because written words are linear and logical, it actually sort of reinforces that kind of thinking. Um, And so, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so many ways I could answer this. (laughs) Um, I think that reading is is critical for, um, for critical thinking, um, for logic, um, for our humanity. And of course, for living out in the world as people who are um, part of a faith that is one centered on the word. Yeah. And so what <clears throat> maybe someone isn't all the way on the side of the spectrum where they're like, they don't, they hate reading. Cause I even have friends that are like, I, they just genuinely seem to, <laughs> to hate reading, which I don't understand, but um, we'll there respect you go. somehow, <laughs> but how, but so maybe they're not there, but they're also not a voracious reader. Mm-hmm. How, how would you, uh, um, give some advice to cultivating a deeper love mm-hmm. for reading? Yeah, um, that's a, such a great question. And and I think there are so many people who are there in that spot somewhere, somewhere on the spectrum. And that's great to gear this um, part of the discussion toward them. So I would, first of all, I would say that um, to everyone, that mm-hmm. the struggle is real. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I lived, I have lived long enough and I grew up as a reader long before we had social media or the internet or even email. So I know what it was like to live and read in a world where there really were fewer distractions for our minds. Um, And also when attention spans were longer. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's it's demonstrable that our attention spans yeah. are shortening. We use different, lots of research that shows we actually use different parts of our brain when we read on a screen versus when we read a book. And so our brains are actually, and, and the you know, synapses in our brains and the frontal lobe versus the back lobe, that all those things are being exercised and cultivated and strengthened differently um, because of digital media. And, and that's not to say one is you know, I, I, worse than the other. There are a lot of gifts that come with, with digi- digital media and uh-huh. social media. Um, but the fact of the matter is that our brains are being exercised in, in different ways. So all that to say the struggle is real. So we have to recognize that, that the struggle is real, uh, recognize that we need to use intention and develop skill and practice. Yep. Um, you know, even things like putting our phones uh, you know, in another room for 20 minutes, if that's yeah. what it takes. And yep. and for some of us, including me, that is now what it takes. Yep. Um, and also realizing that we, that reading, deep reading or spiritual reading um, or immersive reading, there are lots of different terms that get used uh-huh. for it, is a very, very different practice from skimming a newspaper article or skimming a blog or reading your Twitter timeline. And so we actually have to force ourselves to slow down, um, to reflect, to pause and reread a sentence perhaps or a paragraph, to use a pen to underline or, mm-hmm. or keep a notebook. These are all practices and skills that require in, uh, intention and attention, um, and they all help us to read the, in that more deep way, read yeah. works that you know, go beyond um, Facebook. I've got a bunch of follow-up questions about a lot of what you just said, <clears throat> but okay. before I get to that, um, uh, it, taking into consideration the world that I have three kids, um, they are 12, eight, uh, 12, 10, and seven. And so they're growing up in the midst of just the most distracted age, uh, probably mm-hmm. imaginable. 
So um, I think one thing that we share in common is that my parents really did an exceptional job of reading to me as well. And that is one thing I do attribute my own love uh, of reading to. We read with our kids. Um, but anything in addition to that, any advice that you would give to parents on fostering a love of reading in their kids at a young age? Yeah, I would. Um, and this might be somewhat controversial, but this is another thing that um, that my parents did um, and is that they let me read whatever I wanted to. Um, Love that. Which meant I read some things that <laughs> would probably concern yeah. some parents. <laughs> um, now, of course, there maybe there are more things out there that we don't want people to read, but kid, let kids pursue their interests. And, and if you're concerned about that their interests are, are too dark or too uh -huh. scary or whatever, well, then at least, you know, require maybe reading something else along the way. But really just let them, you know, if reading is not enjoyable and fun and interesting, then, then kids aren't going to do it. So, um, so that's what I, I, I have, would say. This is, this is a completely a selfish question just because of my own kids. What are your uh, personal opinions about things like graphic novels or something like that, especially with kids? Um, yeah, I, I don't, yeah, I don't, I, I think those are great. I, I actually, um, I, 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 yeah, I haven't thought about this a lot, but um, I actually read a lot of comic books when I was a kid because, okay. and I don't, I, I don't even like comic books or superheroes or any of those things now. I don't follow yeah. any of them, but I read comic books because, because of their form, um, because you, you, they could lay flat on a table and you didn't have to use your hands. So I, I brought a comic book to the table to eat because, hmm. um, because I could, I didn't have to, you, you know, they, they fold over. Task, yeah. Yes. And so I, and so I, my father used to tease me that I would go, you know, I'd go on my first date on a candlelight dinner and I'd have to bring a comic book. <laughs> and so while I was reading books, I was also reading comic books. Okay. Um, and again, there are words there. I think, you know, I don't know. I, I've done a little bit of um, study on graphic novels and they're very sophisticated as an art form. Um, and I think, you know, I think they count. Okay. They count. That's good. I like that answer. <laughs> All right. Um, I did not mean to turn this into you uh, shepherding my own parenting, but that is helpful. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, especially after reading your new book on reading well, um, personally, I'd argue based on what I learned from you, one reason it's so important that we read widely and well is because of the case that you build for the way that reading forms us. And, uh, and one simple statement that you made that I loved in your introduction was that literature embodies virtue and virtue is not a word that I feel like I hear very often anymore. And so I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what virtue is and how does literature embody it? Sure. So there's a long history and moral philosophy of, of, of virtue and the field is called virtue ethics. And mm -hmm. um, so the, by its, in a simplest definition, virtue is a quality. Um, so, you know, we might say the, you know, the virtues of, of this uh, field are these qualities. So we okay. could, you know, use it that way, but, but the f moral philosophers also, they meant it in the sense of the qualities that make a thing um, what it is in its most excellent form. So, you know, anything that exists has virtues or qualities. And so moral um, philosophers looked at what, what makes human beings most human and most excellent at being human, and those are their virtues. And so there are lots of virtues that they identify. So the things that make human beings the best 
at being human are qualities or mm-hmm. virtues like courage and prudence and temperance and uh, loyalty and all, all lots of lists depending on whether you're looking sure. at the Greeks or the Romans. Um, and then, of course, you know, the Bible has its own virtues that it talks about for Christians. And so virtues are further defined uh, by being a moderation between an excess of equality and a deficiency of equality. Okay. So one of the easiest ways to look at this is is the virtue of courage, which is is the the the, the perfect or golden mean between um, between cowardice uh-huh. and recklessness. Right. So. It, because if you have too much, if you're too bold or too rash, that's actually not courage. Right. Yep. Um, but of course, if you have too little, that's that's cowardice. And so there's a lovely, wonderful, uh, long tradition of of you know kind of distinguishing between what's too much and too little of something. And I think that's part of what we've we've lost today is we're such a sort of a polarized extreme society mm-hmm. that we often think if something's good, more of it is better, or mm. if something's bad just we should have none i mean that you know, think about the eating disorders that sure. are rampant in our culture like eating is good we have to eat to live right. um and so too much or too little is bad and so our appetites need to be moderated um to give us the virtue of temperance so so then how do you so you you just mentioned courage and you use we'll talk about i want to talk about how the book is is organized but you use the uh um Tom Sawyer, or I'm sorry, Huck Finn, as mm-hmm. the example um, right. of courage. And I love the way that you broke that down. But how, how exactly in this literature embodies virtue idea? Mm-hmm. Talk to me about, yeah. about how you conceive of that. Yeah. So I don't mean just, although it includes, I don't just mean, oh, you read a story and it teaches you a lesson about virtue. Right. I mean, that, yes, that's there. But most works of literature don't have like, they don't, they don't, their characters are not entirely virtuous or entirely sure. vicious. So it's more than just the lessons that stories um, teach us, but good literature actually embodies virtue by, by forcing us as we're reading it or to, to undergo the kind of weighing and considering and thinking <laughs> that the story is asking us to do. So it is we're traveling along with a character like Huckleberry Finn and, you know, and, and we're seeing the things that he faces in the very active reading requires us to, um, and again, this is really with more with literary art. There's a lot of, you know, the, you know, reading this just entertaining doesn't require as much of this from us. But we actually have to make these decisions. We have to we have to think. Oh, Huck, that's that's wrong. That's stupid. Yep. Or oh, yep. Huck, yeah, you're a good kid. Wow, you're a good kid, and that's what uh-huh. I would do too. So we are actually that's how literature embodies virtue because we have to exercise virtue hmm. to read well. Yeah, no, that 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 helps. Uh, so in your book, you do, you take a, this great work of literature and then you draw from it one specific virtue that is modeled throughout or that we have to wrestle with throughout. Mm -hmm. And then you also divide the chapters into these three parts, um, uh, around the classical virtues, uh, cardinal virtues, theological virtues, and heavenly virtues. Unfortunately, those are categories that were new to me. Uh, (laughs) I haven't read about virtue ethics up to this point in my life. So could you just maybe explain briefly the, the difference between those three categories? 
Sure. Um, so the cardinal virtues are pretty consistent throughout um, throughout uh, the philosophical tradition. Um, they're considered the ones that all of the others sort of spring from. Okay. Um, and so those that we mentioned, courage, um, yep. prudence, temperance, and justice are. And then if you go beyond that, and you can look again, the Catholic, the early Catholic Church or the Roman. Um, philosophers and, and thinkers and the Greek ones, they all have different lists. There are actually um, like civic virtues that the Romans emphasized. Uh, and so when I was writing the book, I, I basically, I mean, I, I had to do a lot of research. This is, I'm an English professor. I'm not a philosopher. So uh -huh. I had to do a lot of research and I just, you know, I knew the books that I wanted to talk about and I looked at all the different lists of virtues and read a lot of books on uh, virtue ethics and, um, and just thought these are some of the most basic categories um, that uh -huh. are out there uh, and uh, the ones, you know, and then I just had to pick the works of literature to go through them. But there are lots of, lots of different, there are so many uh, different virtues out there. I just, I feel like I could write a whole other book about them. So. It, I, I did. I mean, reading your book made me feel the same way that I felt taking a couple of literature courses in college, where on the one hand, it very much makes me want to read more and to read better for sure. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, but it also, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But also I find myself a little frustrated because I read you reflecting on these books and I'm like, I did not see any of this. <laughs> like somehow <laughs> I missed so much of this. And so I know you teach an entire, like entire courses on this topic, so mm -hmm. you can't provide a perfect <laughs> short answer, but how does one take first steps and beginning to read more deeply? Are there questions we should ask, traits we look for? How do we learn to read in a way that um, does in fact, mm -hmm. that we're able to begin to mine some of these deeper mm -hmm. things that you seem to so effortless, effortlessly draw out? That is such a good question. I do wanna say it's not effortless for me. I, okay. I'm actually, um, I actually find literary analysis and criticism somewhat difficult. And I think okay. that's what makes me a good teacher is because I have to wrestle through it. And so I, you know, some of the most brilliant people I know often are not, you know, they're not as good at teaching because it just, because they don't have it's to work at it. They don't, yeah. They don't yeah. know how to break it down. So I feel like for me, I do have to break it down. And so in this book, I'm, I'm hoping to actually kind of model mm -hmm. how to do that. And, um, and then actually my new series that's out with B and H of six volumes set. I, you know, two are out, two are coming out and the next two are in the future. Um, I actually do even more of this. So I take um, okay. several classic works of literature and I write introductions that give sort of the background without any spoilers so that a person can be prepared to go in and read. And then, um, and then I give discussion questions after each major section. And at the end, again, without spoilers to kind of walk readers through and say, what's the significance of this? What's the significance of that? So that's like a mini course, um, yeah. the series, the classic series with B&H. But even without that, the, what, what you really do is, is, is read slowly, pay attention, and ask a lot of questions. So okay. if there's a word that's used and it's an odd way that it's used, or there's a sentence that's written in a, a weird way, like it, then, then you just stop and say, or a detail that's there or a detail that's missing. Mm -hmm. Just ask yourself why, what is that doing there? What is the effect of that? Why did the writer do this? And all of those questions lead you to 
uh, that's what, I mean, that's what analysis is and yeah. they lead, lead you to thinking critically about a work. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, we, <clears throat> we talked about this a little bit, but I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts some more. Just uh, to hear you talk about what you think some of the great enemies of our ability to read well are, mm. maybe in our current culture. Um, I'd love to hear maybe a little bit more about how you personally steward your own digital consumption, things like social media. I did read uh, The Shallows based mm. on your reference to it in your book, which is basically that the internet is the devil to the brain. <laughs> pretty much, pretty That's much. That's my short synopsis of that book. <laughs> um, it's very scary. <laughs> it is very scary. And so I just, I wonder as someone who has figured out how to do both because you are, I've noticed you're very active still on social media and you do write um, on digital platforms. And so somehow you're producing these great works, still being able to read deeply and think clearly and live in this digital space. So mm -hmm. any tips that you have or just practices and how you seek to, to juggle all this? Yeah, well, I feel like I haven't figured it out, and I feel like I'm I'm losing uh, <laughs> I'm losing the battle. But um, so I, it is something that I am continuing to wrestle with. Uh, but fortunately, I have a strong foundation underneath me from all yeah. these years that's helping. Um, and so and and so and for me, yeah, part of it is it's my job to read and teach literature. So sure. that's what I you know have to do, and that helps a lot. Um, and and it's you know it it just I I. I think the biggest tip is um, is just really the physical discipline of of putting the phone aside. I use sometimes the the Pomodoro method, which is to just um, you get a timer and okay. uh, set it for twenty five minutes. They've yep. research has shown that's like the idea twenty five minutes, and you work you write for twenty five minutes, or you could read, and then you take a, a five minute break. And okay. then you do it in chunks uh, for whatever reason, 25 minutes is considered sort of a, <laughs> an optimal okay. time period. Um, so you just, again, you have to be intentional about it. Um, you have to build some practices. There's a great book um, that gives some other helpful tips called uh, it's uh, uh, atomic habits. Oh, great. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it just gives a lot of different yeah. ideas for how to build these um these skills and habits so it comes down and this is what virtue so virtue going back to virtue uh -huh. um what aristotle his big you know uh, legacy that he left about virtue is that virtue is uh, a habit that becomes a practice that becomes a virtue right. so it becomes second nature so you have to you have to you have to be intentional you have to build a habit knowing yeah. that you're doing it. And then when you no longer have to think about it, it becomes natural to you. That is when you have attained that virtue. Yeah. Um, I haven't attained any virtues about social media. I'm still working okay. on that. On okay, that. Cool. Um, but it is, that out, yeah. write that book. Yeah. But it, you know, it is, I mean, there's so much that I learned that this is the problem for me is that I'm always reading. Like people link, mm -hmm. I love to read. I love to read articles. And, and so people link, link to an article they tweet right. an article and then i'm reading the article and so in a way i'm you know that that's what keeps me there <laughs> yeah all the, all the reading i can do uh, one thing i really do appreciate about both this conversation and in your book is your just encouragement to read and and that your bent is almost toward re reading anything is all better than reading nothing right, um, right. But you you make this connection in your book between the importance of reading well and enjoying what you're reading and so i wanted a little bit more of your thoughts on that because uh, there were these two 
there's these two kind of sentences, paragraphs side by side that I, I really liked and wanted to hear you talk about. Uh, on the one hand, you say practice makes perfect, but pleasure makes practice more likely. So read something enjoyable. I loved that. And then your next paragraph, you write, on the other hand, the greatest pleasures are those born of labor and investment. A book that requires nothing from you might offer the same diversion as that of a television sitcom, but is unlikely to provide intellectual, aesthetic, or spiritual rewires long after the cover is closed. And so is there balance in this? Like, I know, for instance, you like to run. And so is it like running where you start with something manageable and then you continue to push and challenge yourself? Or mm -hmm. how, do, how do we go from just reading graphic novels or like trash magazines to mm -hmm. these great works of literature that do have more forming impact on us? That is a great question. So I think it, it is like running okay. and it's also like eating. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's about the variety. So if you really want to be a good runner, which I am not, but, you know, I ran cross country in high school, so uh -huh. I, you know, had good training. Um, you know, if you want to be a long distance runner, you also also have to run sprints. Uh -huh. um, and if you want to have a well-rounded diet, you know, you, you don't deprive yourself of the, you know, of the, of the bad stuff, but you yeah. eat a variety and, and have treats. Um, and so I would say with reading, you know, yeah, read, pick up the pleasure reading thing that's fun and you don't have to invest a lot in, but then pick up a difficult, challenging work. And here's the thing is some of these works that are so wonderful, like from the 18th century and the mm -hmm. 19th century that yeah. are challenging to us today, you actually will gain more intellectual growth, more critical thinking growth and more pleasure in getting 10, five or 10% of it than you will from a hundred percent of like the latest, whatever, you know, whatever. Yeah. 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 So don't look, so, so don't be intimidated if you pick up a book that's really challenging, like something by Jonathan Swift or Tr mm -hmm. Lawrence Stern or Charles Dickens. Um, and, and like read it and be delighted for every, you know, every two pages you get, or three or four pages, you get yeah. something that you really, really can hang on to. That's you, you gain so much more than what you get of all those words that you read out of, you know, the, the latest self help book by right. a Instagram influencer. <laughs> right. Do you reckon, so if someone takes like a, a giant Dickens book mm -hmm. um, and they're going to like, so I, I've not read that. So one of his books. So if I'm going to pick that up and I'm going to go after it, do you recommend doing that in two and three page chunks? Just plow through. Like, how, how do you recommend someone that wants to make their way through what's going to be a slower, more arduous reading for them? any advice on how to begin making your way through that? I mean, I, I do think that, um, you know, momentum helps. And so, uh -huh. you know, I mean, you could put a book, you know, by your chair or bedside and just read a few pages a night for, you know, several months or, you know, a year and mm -hmm. that's fine. Um, I, but, find, I have found that hard personally. Yeah. The yeah momentum I think is I, huge for me. Yeah. Yeah. So, Maybe, you know, so maybe something, if you were talking about Dickens, uh -huh. don't start with Bleak House, which is, you know, his longest novel. Start with okay. A Christmas Carol, right. um, you know, uh, which is which is just as de delightful. I, it, you know, you get almost everything that you can get out of Dickens um, from reading A Christmas Carol. Um, and so, 
yeah, I mean, I, I think I think you have to be willing to find what works for you. Um, and for some of us, that's reading, you know, multiple books at a time. I, I don't like doing that much. Uh, I mean, I have nonfiction books going all the time because I'm working on things. But mm-hmm. in terms of like, if I'm reading something that's just for fun, just for me, yeah. um, I want, you know, I want to be devoted solely to that. Yeah. All right. I've got an, another question on this one's pretty selfish and I'm hoping you have a good answer to this. Oh, please me tell me, please tell me that you have some guilty pleasure that you enjoy reading just for fun. Oh, like everything I- in me wants to know that you love <laughs> <Okay>. Twilight. <laughs> oh, no. All right. No, so, no, uh, no, else. but I will tell you, I do the guilty pleasure that I have. I actually do not enjoy reading bad writing okay. or, you know, even going to bad movies. Um, yep. I, I like, I don't have time and I don't, I don't enjoy it. Okay. So, but what I, because I'm, I am actually developing my ability to listen to audible. Oh yeah. Um, so I'm not, you know, I'm a visual learner, so it's mm-hmm. harder for me to listen. And me so too. I, um, so I, when I'm running, I will listen to, um, some pretty bad suspense stories, That's awesome. um, until I, well, I, I do return them when when they're really badly written. I can't listen to them when they're filled with cliches, yeah, um, and just dumb. Then I ret- I turn I return them. Audible has a good return, you know. I can't. and so, but if it's a well written, you know, Stephen King, uh-huh. you know, he's he's great. I love Stephen King. Right. He's great to listen to when you're running. Um, yeah. So I guess those are guilty pleasures. It's not Twilight, but I'll take it. It's better than nothing. <laughs> All right, a couple of rapid fire questions to close, uh, especially I've been asking these to people just because this has been such a hard year for so many people. And so I'd love to hear about different ways that people are getting through it. So just your best kind of off the top of your head answer to this. But what's something simple that brings you joy right now? I love my routine. Um, and so I love um, just every morning, um, I have, you know, chickens and I board horses here. So going out and doing my barn chores in the morning and then coming back and reading um, the newspaper over um, breakfast is just, I just love that every day. Your life is exceptional. It's just, you have the most magical, you get to write about and read great books and you have chickens and live on a farm and run and I'm jealous. I feel like you're winning this year. It is, it is, it is magical. And I, and I do want to say, um, that, um, my husband and I worked hard for it for many years. It was a Uh dream we had for many years and we worked toward it. We don't take it for granted. Um, but it is, we made a lot of choices along the way to get here. So love that. That's good. So what is something that you have read or listened to recently that inspires you? I am, I am, when I, I I'll probably say this on Twitter when I'm done, but this is really, and, and, well, I'm not really that embarrassed, but I remember my specialty is British literature. Uh So, so I am reading, I'm listening to on audible for the first time and loving it so much. I can't believe it. (laughs) John Steinbeck's East of Eden. You've never, you've never read it. I've never read it. No. No, I never, I, you know, I missed out on a lot of American literature because uh-huh. I chose, I, because, I, because I did not, I, because of Moby Dick in college, yeah. <laughs> I did not like Moby Dick. So I just okay. went to British literature okay. uh, from then. On, and, and I love East of Eden. I cannot awesome. believe it. It's so good. I am so excited about it. 
<laughs> I'd love too that you are still excited about about a book. Like it's awesome for all the books you've read. What's uh, what's something you're working on or thinking through right now that makes you feel alive? Um. Uh. Let's see. That's a good question. I've never, that makes me feel alive. That's a, you know, I'm always working on a lot of things. They don't yeah. always make me feel alive. So, yeah. um, um, I am, I, I need to, I need to start thinking about, and I'm just, the thoughts are just germinating about my next book um, okay. that I will write. And so I'm just, you know, I'm beginning to allow my, cause I have some other projects that I have to uh -huh. pick up, finish up in the next year. Yep. So it's hard for, so it's just like kind of in the back of my mind, but I cannot wait to write my own next book. Good. Will it be in a similar vein or are you going in a different route? Um, it'll, it will, it will be about literature, but it'll be more cultural criticism too. So it'll probably okay. be a little bit more toward cultural criticism. Okay. Um, so yeah. Awesome. All right. Last question. What's your best piece of advice to the average person who is living through the insanity that is 2020? Hmm. Um, I guess my advice is to remember that this too shall pass. Um, so think Good. about the future, but also, I mean, I just, the thing that has grounded me the most through this time period is my, my, you know, knowledge of, of what, human beings have lived through for, you know, in previous centuries, um, because of my study of literature and history, I know yeah. how bad, I know how bad it, it, it is for most people everywhere and um, throughout human history and, and we're not even close. So that right. gives me perspective. Yeah, no, that is really good. I mean, there is a huge part of how difficult th this has been that does highlight how fortunate we have been. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's almost what has made it so, so hard is that we're just... Mm -hmm. I don't, I mean, I don't mean to sound like mean or harsh, but so, we're soft <laughs> in, yeah. in so many ways. We just, <laughs> that, I don't know how the, else to that's say That's the it. word my husband uses all the time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we are very soft. <laughs> yes. Well, Karen, um, you are a real gift to uh, anyone who reads anything that you've written. Uh, this new book is no exception. This first, this, your newest book is my gate, my gateway to all of your writing. And so I'm excited to be able to continue to press into that. And it is, I think I read this in one of the reviews about your books. It's the great thing about your books. It's like having one of the best literature professors to walk you through all of these readings. And so some of the books that you write about, I've read others. I haven't. Um, but I think the highest compliment I'd, I'd pay is it just, you make me want to read better and read more. And uh, this conversation has uh, taken me even further down that path. So thank you so much for your work and for your time today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Mm -hmm.